Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome. This is another episode of Life's Third Act. This week, I want to talk to you about heirlooms. And some of you are saying, what are heirlooms? Uh, Heirlooms are those items that are, you'd consider personal property. They're they're stuff, they're things, they're, uh, the law calls it personality, but it's things that are not real estate. They're not a fixture. They're not attached to real estate. They don't have documents of title. Like, for example, a car is typically not an heirloom. I guess it could be, but typically when you're talking about heirlooms, you're talking about things where it's not clear from any filing with any government entity who owns it because it doesn't have documents of title. You know, chairs and couches and all those things, jewelry, they don't have documents of title per se. So generally, these things are called heirlooms because they often are passed down for multiple generations. In some cases, it's something, though, that could be very valuable uh, for emotional or personal reasons that that is fairly new. Maybe your, your mother bought it or your grandmother bought it, and it's given directly to you. So the better way to characterize this discussion is to think of it as a discussion about what do you do with the stuff that we might call personal property. And uh, I, what stimulated this the show, in fact, was an article that I thought was really well done, and it was in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Ashley Ebeling wrote this article, and it's called Pass on Your Heirlooms, Not Family Drama. It's a pretty good title, and and it, especially when you know kind of what the article's about. It's about the fact that that often personal property can cause a disproportionate amount of conflict given its relative value to other things. So often it's not the money that these things are actually worth. It's about the memories or the emotions or whatnot that attaches to it. Sometimes it's just about some conflict in the family in which maybe it's it's expressing the conflict through an argument over personal property. It's not really so much about the personal property. It's about maybe this simmering sort of family dynamic that has been there for some time and perhaps may have exploded to the surface, for example, for the first time after when the, the patriarch or whoever it was, the common ancestor, died. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. So the, the article, I, I thought that that Ashley raised some good points. If you pronounce it Ashley, maybe it's Ashleya. Uh, but I thought she raised some good points, and and I wanted to. I'll make reference to a few of her points, but but mostly I want to add my own thoughts on this subject because it is true. She's on the right track when she talks about the fact that 
attorneys often do overlook this. We attorneys are guilty of thinking, let's focus on the big ticket items. So we know the things that have great value are important, especially when the real estate, stocks and bonds, any sort of financial security, immediately our mind as professionals go to those things and think about you know, who's going to get them. Um, certainly tax deferred assets, retirement assets, you know, these are always in the in the forefront of our considerations when we're doing estate planning to, to be sure that we've covered these things. And a similar thing, uh, when I was practicing as a divorce lawyer, it was a similar approach where often our, our focus would be on the big ticket items because we're being practical, right? But divorce, kind of like probate, is not always about practical considerations. As a matter of fact, it notoriously is not about practical considerations. It, it notoriously is fueled with things that have very little monetary value, but but drive in a decisive way the process of divorce. And I would even argue, to some extent, probate, and maybe even to a greater extent, depending on the family. And these things are jealousy and divorce. It's betrayal. Um, it's it's that the that dynamic where someone once said you can't hate anybody as much as somebody that you loved at one time. So there's some truth in that. So there's a lot going on uh, in terms of family relationships. And I think that that makes its way into both those scenarios. And I'll add this parallel as well. Uh, I can tell you the personal property sometimes became a very big deal. There were even occasions when we went to trial over the personal property when everything else was settled. But these are often cases where there's a lot of bitterness between the parties. It's not business consideration or even, I should better characterize it, it, it was not a financial consideration. It was purely about somebody feeling betrayed or somebody feeling vindictive, um, all that, that maelstrom or pot of emotions that, that can make for a lot of expensive litigation, a lot of lawyer fees. I don't care what the issue is, what area of law it is. It, it, if families or the parties are driven by things that are much less about practical considerations or I'll say rational things, then it's it, there's no limit to what people can and, and have spent as a percentage of, of their estate, whether it's a marital estate or, or a, a probate estate. So in the divorce context, I remember one situation where these were both professionals. Wife was a school teacher. Um, husband was an officer at a financial institution, bank, um, and they were very bitter. Um, the husband in this case had had an affair, um, and, and there was a lot of resentment about that, and, uh, and this marriage had been substantial, like 15 or 20 years. And we resolved everything, including some pretty large assets. Those things we got past, albeit everything was, you know, a little tugging and pulling. But when it came to the personality, the wheels fell off the bus. I'm just telling you, that was the point where, where the lawyers, in this case, we really did not want to 
see this case go to trial. Contrary to the stereotype of lawyers that some people think that lawyers jan up you know, any sort of conflict they can in order to make additional fees. I'm not saying that, that, that there are no such lawyers. I'm sh- yes, there are lawyers like that. But do I think that that's generally true? Generally, lawyers have work, um, sadly, if you're a divorce lawyer or even a probate lawyer. And, and so there, there's really, there's no need for that. And, and I can just tell you that in our case, on both sides, uh, we were trying to get this settled so much so, and even the judge was wanting to see it settled. The judge was impatient with it because he, judges often don't want to go to trial. If you if you thought otherwise, I could see how you might think that. You think, well, that to judge is what they do is they're supposed to to, to judge. In order to judge, they need to hear uh, the the case of the res- cases of the respective parties. That's how else can they judge? So they go to work every day, assuming that they're going to be judging a dispute. Well, that's really not the way it turns out. Uh, being a judge can often be be a very uh, relaxing. Um, a very uh, non-demanding sort of job. It's a job that may be elective. Uh, some cases it's appointed, depending on the county. Uh, in Missouri, you have both. You have some counties where judges are elected for certain positions and others where, where the governor or, or typically the governor would appoint uh, judges in, in another, other counties. So uh, judges prefer to have a leisurely day, and it's not leisurely when a judge is having to, to sit and and during a trial and make decisions. You know, split second decisions. Objections are made. The judge has to either abstain or overrule those objections. If the judge gets it wrong, he or she's going to get reversed on appeal if the case goes on appeal, and that makes the judge look bad. And so judges would prefer to not be in that situation where. Uh, they have to spend their entire day, you know, in relatively stressful conditions. And not all judges feel this stress, incidentally. But you have to understand that that not just the lawyers have to be 100% dialed in and have to be attentive and 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 bring their A game to court. But judges too have to. They it's up to them to make a decision on the spot. So they don't have to. Sometimes they'll delay it, but mostly it's decisions on the spot. Anyway, so. So in this case, the judge also wanted to avoid a trial. Um, so the judge actually uh, ruled after we had each had a sort of informal hearing and we put before the court that all other issues had been decided. The judge ruled then that the parties would each select, take turns selecting items from a list that the attorneys agreed was complete. So um, we had prepared lists. Each of us had a property list that was attached to the pleadings, and we we compared them, and ultimately we reconciled them, so we agreed on one single list. And once that was done, the judge ordered that the parties take turns. So here we have a list of, I don't remember the name, it's at least 100 items, and it could have been 150 or more. It was a long list. But we spent um, the better part of the day sitting in the conference room of our offices, each taking turns selecting from the list. And these were often not very expensive things. I don't want you to think that, that what these people owned was valuable collections of items and, and, and antiques and, and valuable jewelry. There were some items that had some value, but the, that was really not what this was about. And uh, th- this is an illustration of the sort of conflict that can result regarding heirlooms or personal property. 
And so I, I think that that attorneys, as attorneys, we are guilty in estate planning of sometimes not encouraging our clients to think deeply enough about this subject. So hence, uh, you know, I want to to take a show and talk about some things that you can do to deal with those. And some of these are ideas that, that were in the article, uh, Pass on Your Heirlooms, Not Family Drama, is Wall Street Journal article. So um, Ashley, I had some ideas, but but I want to, to add some things to that. But I, either way, we equip you with the capability of being able to head off what could very well be the deal killer in in your being able to transmit to pass your estate to the people you love in a way that they're they're harmonious through the process and more importantly after the process with one another. So um, just focusing on the big ticket items are important, obviously, uh, but but really there may be more more potential trouble that would be brewing in those things that that are often called heirlooms. So um, let me explain to you the how these are handled in the probate estate. So in your will, you doubtlessly have what's called a residuary clause. And the residuary clause um, would have a provision that whatever else rests in my estate, I want to go equally or in shares or whatever it might be to, and then you name you know, who your children or your grandchildren, whoever that might be. Now, you can above that before you get to what's called the residuary clause, which kind of captures whatever's left. Um, above that, you can make specific bequests. So you can choose to list in specific in, in your specific bequests certain things that go to certain people. That can definitely be done, often is done. But usually it's not a mechanism to deal with the many items that might cause some resentment. Yeah, you can you can identify the things that you think these are have notorious potential. Uh, uh, these are likely suspects in terms of causing conflict. So you can often pick out those things, but but you have to remember that they're out of probably a hundred plus significant items you own. And I'm not assuming you're rich, but I'm willing to argue that these are significant in some way. They've been in the family a long time. Maybe a child grew up and this was familiar to them. They associate it with, with you. Um, there could be a lot of other things. It could be from, from your ancestors, grandparents, etc. So there are, there are just a lot of things, more than you normally would list as specific bequests in that paragraph. But just just so you know, that would be the sort of law school answer. Where do you provide for specific items? Well, it'd be specific bequests. But realistically, that probably isn't the place for you to fully handle those things. Now, you can you can handle it by having an attachment in which you have an inventory of items and you list who they go to. That would be a, a way to make it clear. And you attach it to the will at the time it's made, not later. So you can be sure that it's going to be valid. It's incorporated into the will. But let me hurry to add that many of you I know are not counting on a will to accomplish this. Many of you are have in place a living trust, a revocable trust, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'm, if you guys watch this show enough, you have that in place. And you know then that, that you can have a document in which you inventory your personality. And this affidavit of gift is what transfers these items into your trust. So 
all your personal property is in your trust if you've been a regular listener of this show and have and have just done the the things that we harp about then then you would have done this um, it still though doesn't answer the point of this show which is to talk about how it, are those distributed once they're in the trust so whether we were talking about uh, something that's an attachment to your to your will or whether it's something that 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 you have as a as an affidavit of gift into your trust. It does mean though if it's in your trust it's not going through probate, thankfully. So that's a you know that that's a marvelous advantage as you know. Uh, those of you though who simply have a will then yes the personal property does still go through probate even though what some families do if they don't have items that they require a document of title like real estate or like cars or financial accounts, a bank account, stock security. Those are all things that that they they have a a title, a certificate of title in which you have to get that changed. And the only way to do that, if you've not done it by way of of, of a trust or by way of a transfer on death clause, et cetera, then the only way to accomplish that is you've got to go through probate to get those changed. That's the primary function of probate is to get documents of title addressed and determine who's to get the, the assets. But the things we're talking about now, that's not an issue because these are things that are, you know, chairs and, and cameras and and uh, electronics and all those things that dishes, all those things where, you know, what you could do if you had a relative, and, and these are what poor people do, I think, regularly, uh, is that, you know, they're grandmother will pass away and they'll all go over to grandma's house and get stuff and 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 you know hopefully agree or maybe it's first come first serve but they come and get stuff and they walk away and nothing's ever filed with the court well if there's no real estate involved where there needs to be a change of title which means it requires a probate ruling to get a judge to bring a gavel down saying that the person whose name on that piece of paper has passed away and the court now says you know Joe Smith her son now owns it, for example. Without that order from a court, the, that, that document can't be, or that real estate can't be transferred. Same thing for cars, same thing for bank accounts. I mean, all those things, you have to have some mechanism by which you change the name. Now, transfer on death, again, uh, payable on death. Uh, you can have, even with real estate, you can have you know a, a, a provision, which you have a, what's called a beneficiary deed. You can have it transfer also, in which there is no no probate court required. But these, again, these are alternatives to probate, and the best alternative to probate, of course, is the revocable trust. But if you were, I'm going to focus here for the next few minutes, though, on what most people sadly do. They don't have a trust, and they don't have mechanisms to deal with those various things, so they have to go through probate. And and that's the thing that that is very profitable for lawyers, I'll just tell you. It's by statute that lawyers are paid, and the statute is pretty generous. And also, it, it means money being paid to courts. It means delay. It means an invitation to creditors out there to come and, and if they have any claims, you know, assert them. And, and if there are any valid claims out there, that's going to come off the top before anything's available to be distributed. So there's lots of things about probate that you just don't want to do, and I've talked about that on other shows. But I did want you to understand that that even though these things, these items don't have those certificates of title, it still doesn't change the law. The law is that they still were owned by that person who died, and it's now for the probate court to make the decision who owns it now. 
even though as a practical matter, some people never bother doing that if if their relative didn't own real estate, didn't own documents of title and of, of anything such as bank accounts, retirement accounts. It had none of that. I mean, there there are there are people out there, maybe you're one of them, um, who don't own any of those things. And you know, generally they would be poor. And so in those cases, yeah, it just means family comes over and gets the stuff they want and and hopefully there's not a fight. And if there is, they, they may settle it there, I assume. But they end up, you know, it, it gets done in some fashion. Probably not the way that grandma wanted it done. Grandma may have had specific ideas. So what are some ideas as to ways to head off this, this conflict, which notoriously can be grossly disproportional to the value of the stuff we're talking about here? So what we're about to talk about here is applicable whether we're dealing with a probate estate, meaning a will, or whether we're dealing with a trust. Either way, this, these, these considerations I, I put before you. Um, one is that is you give, whether it's your trustee or your personal representative, you give them authority and a process by which they can do it. If nothing else, you give them the authority. Now, I, often I think just giving them the authority may not be enough. I think that you have to give them more direction. So you might say to your personal representative, personal representative applies to will, trustee applies to trust. So I'm treating these the same for purposes of solving this problem here. So I'll use trustee. So the, the, the trustee, for for him to know that that he's to distribute those assets as he sees fit, is is an invitation for a lot of resentment toward him. Um, and I don't think that it's going to be the ideal solution. I think often you have to give him more direction. You may say that I want these certain things to go to certain people, that you can be very specific about that. You can even prepare a list and date it if you want to make provision for it yourself and not have your trustee be saddled with making those decisions. Um, so some people will prepare a, a, an elaborate list in which they go through their house and identify things that they think are going to be of interest to their family, and and they uh, specifically state that it's to go to them. And that in that case, it's not the trustee having discretion. In that case, it's the trustee of simply doing what you said to do. That's one approach. Often, that may still cause some resentment. I think if you use that approach, you should you should also make a point to talk to your loved ones about the items that are most important maybe to them and explaining who you're giving it to and why. That's something that is often easier to do than it is to talk about financial assets. Um, Notoriously, people don't want to disclose what they're going to do when they die, uh, often with their kids. I found this to be true, that somehow it's a conversation they kind of want to postpone. Uh, But it's a little easier to do it if you're talking about the heirlooms, I think, typically. Either way you do it, whether you give discretion to the trustee or whether you provide a list, you at least have a mechanism for solving it. But it can get more creative than that. Um, you know, I gave you an example of what we did in this in this divorce where people took turns. Um, you can have them draw straws uh, for you know to select items. You can have uh, appraisals done, incidentally, for things that have significant value, and agree that that ultimately you want the values to balance. That's not. It doesn't solve everything because, as we talked, it's not just about money, 
but but it does at least get rid of that money resentment where somebody may have gotten one item that say that was far and away the most valuable thing monetarily. Maybe it was a, a, a ring, a piece of jewelry that had been in the family for a long time. And so it's really difficult for the other things to offset that. So if if there's no provision to offset it, then then you you really want to think about having um, some provision uh, in which you discuss why you chose that route. Better still, though, is to try to find a way to counterbalance it. But uh, it's often better to avoid resentment if your goal is to end up with something resembling a a balance in monetary value, if that's your goal. And I do think that generally helps is is to shoot for something that that balances financially. Uh, It doesn't it doesn't solve everything, but it's a good starting point. And in order to do that, you have to be prepared to get appraisals of stuff that have a value say over a thousand bucks. And I know appraisals are not cheap. Uh, I've shopped for people to, to who would do appraisals uh, for estates that were not very large. And I knew that I didn't want to use 10% of the estate in order to get appraisals. So um, you, you do want to have somebody come in who can give you an estimate. And often antique dealers, uh, people who, who deal regularly in auctions, anybody who may be involved in flea markets and so they have an eye for a broad variety of things these people are often very cheap and not to mention they'll offer to buy things if you decide to to do that but uh, bringing somebody in and and telling them on the front end that your intention is not to sell it so you know you're getting the full estimate of value from them as opposed to the value they'd give you if they thought it'd be what they would be paying if they bought it so um, the, the, you can get these values inexpensively, and you can get it often from one person for a broad variety of stuff. Now, if it's art, you probably need somebody specifically for that. Jewelry, you need somebody that has a good eye for valuing diamonds and whatnot. So that often is somebody who is pretty authoritative. But I, I think appraisals are often not done for personal property just because it's it, it's inconvenient and it may delay the distribution a little bit. But I think that often at appraisal, if people know that they ended up with something balanced in the scales, that'll often count. But if it's an heirloom that's not related to money, a shotgun that your grandfather taught you to shoot with and, and was very important to you, and, and yet it goes to you know your brother who may have had no interest for whatever reason. Maybe it was just something that, that a trustee or a personal representative just arbitrarily decided. Those are things that produce a lot of resentment, and particularly when the brother doesn't want to make it right, the other brother. So um, sometimes parties themselves, if they if they receive something that, that isn't appropriate to them, that isn't of as much value to them, Often they can solve it among themselves, but that's a, that's a, when a family's pretty good in terms of their relationships already. So if the family's solid and they're close, then yeah, they can they can iron those things out and they can fix it. So that that's the beauty of having if you have children or grandchildren who are tight and they have strong relationships. Generally, you know that sort of of um, uh, bond makes it difficult for uh, items such as these to cause lasting damage. Uh, it's those those other families which are just as common 
where the relationships are more fragile and you, you throw in spouses, in-laws, um, these spouses are often, often the source, quite frankly, of some of this conflict. You know, it's fed by a spouse who, who has an interpretation on events that, that the, the sibling uh, might not otherwise have had. So uh, family's a complicated thing. And, yeah, and whether it, it's funny, the parallels between divorce law and, and uh, probate is there are a lot of parallels. And, and the primary parallels is that families are imperfect. Families are inclined, if not nurtured, to deteriorate into relationships that are not good. Um, phrase toxic relationships, I think, is used far too, too uh, liberally. But, but the fact is you can have family relationships that, that can be permanently impaired because of disputes over things that may not involve a lot of money, but involve other stuff. And, and so that's the point that we talk about here. Um, I would say that uh, a democratic process would, if nothing else happens, one process would be to simply have everything sold and the money divided. But while that's, that's a logical process, um, this couple I was giving you an example of, they didn't want everything sold and the money divided. They wanted the stuff. So that's the reason the judge did what he did. Plus selling it was going to result in huge reduction in its value. You know, when you sell toasters and, and things like that, a huge discount in value. So um, it, it's something that you don't want to do unless you need to do it. Now, if nobody has an interest, it's the opposite problem. Nobody cares about any of the stuff. And, and I, I'm told that more and more Gen, what would it be, Gen Z, is really not that interested in stuff. Um, so I'm told, uh, I, don't, I don't count on a lot of Gen Z people watching this show, but if we do have some people from that generation, uh, I'd be interested to get your thoughts. But what I'm experiencing and seeing in, in my family, my daughters who you know, who we offer stuff from our home and, and other things. And they don't want any of that stuff. They want to go out and get their own stuff. And, and uh, things are cheaper now. Uh, you know, a chair, a furniture, it's amazing how affordable things have become. And I think, I don't know if that'll continue to be true, but we have seen um, because of, of labor costs in Asia primarily over the last 20 years, we have enjoyed pretty low prices and a lot of things. And I think kids just assume that they can furnish their own house. Um, and I don't know that they attach, and this is the thing that bugs me most. I'm not sure that generation attaches as much emotion or, um, or value to heirlooms, to things that were once important to other members of their family or that were historically important in their family. I'm not sure that the Gen Zers appreciate that. And uh, I may sound like an old fogey talking about this, and, and I hope that I'm wrong. Uh, but I mean, if we did see a trend like that, then whether it's good or bad news, and I don't regard it as good news entirely, there won't be much dispute over personal property and heirlooms, what I've dedicated this show to, because these kids are going to say, fine, take it. You know, I'll, I'm going to buy a new 
China set or whatever. And that's that's general, that literally is an example of what we've dealt with in our house is we have more than one set of China. And it's come from, you know, when people pass away on either side of the family, you get this sort of thing. So we have more than one set. And our kids, they just don't really have an interest. And I have two daughters in their twenties, upper twenties now, or mid one mid twenties, but they don't really have um and appreciation for it. So uh, my, if, if this trend continues, Justin, we'll have to get rid of this show because no one's, it's not a problem. It's funny that you mention that because my wife's mom got mad at us for not putting China on the registry. Now, why did you not put, oh, wait, first of all, how old are you, Justin? Uh, 43. Okay. You look like you're 23, but anyway. So, but why did, how long ago was this? 18 years ago. Okay. So this is on point. Um, why is this? Why why not? Uh partially we don't entertain that much and I don't know, it's something that never really entered our minds. We just we have our regular plates and that's what we use. So maybe in a way it's fashion that the idea of China there's no place for it. Yeah, that's another situation is we have to store it. Yeah. Yeah, and and minimalism is a thing now too. So you would be considered, Justin, a millennial? Uh, technically Gen X, but like the very edge. Okay. Uh, kind of like an early millennial or a late Gen X. It's it's technically a micro-generation. It's uh, zennials is what they call it. So we need to have somebody opine on what's going on with Gen Z. Yeah, maybe we can have Marley comment on that. Yes, yeah, we'll talk to Marley. Um but they, they, so we'll take it this way. We'll say that don't assume that your personal items are going to be of no value to your family. Um, I think that it's it really we've achieved our purpose in the show if we've simply communicated to you that that historically personal property have often been the source, if not of actual probate litigation, for example, even. It, there's there's this uh, insidious harm that happens even in the absence of actual quote unquote litigation, meaning that often practicalities will ultimately triumph for many people unless it's a really bad thing going on in the family. But other than that, but it doesn't mean that there is a better mood or better feelings just because it didn't break out into formal warfare in a in a courtroom. It still can mean that that the parties walk away, these family members, often siblings, walk away with this deeply felt resentment that never made its way into a court, may not even made its way into overt expression to the other loved ones, whether it's their siblings. Because if you think about it, that's the good and bad of family. Um, the good of family is that they're close enough uh, that that they can share things with each other that they would not share with anybody else. That's one of the virtues, I think, of family. But the downside is also true that sometimes you won't say something that you think would appear uh, hostile or would, would uh, harm or diminish or cause any sort of bad feelings in the mind of that relative because of that relationship. When I say that that's often not good, it's because it it's not that you don't feel it, it's that you don't say it. 
and you would say it to a stranger because you don't have an investment in that relationship. So you're angry at the person who, you know, who takes your parking spot uh, or somebody that you have a dispute with in the workplace. Though often you can express that in appropriate ways, but but you can definitely express your anger. Whereas with um, with a loved one, a sibling, um, a, a child, a parent, I mean, it, these are not always on the same generational tier, these disputes that we're talking about here. It's often that in that relationship, it's not expressed. So what happens? Again, it wasn't that there wasn't the ire or the resentment. Instead, it's that it wasn't expressed. So there was no valve by which that that gained expression. Meanwhile, again, I mentioned to you, sometimes spouses feed this process, not necessarily in a diabolical, intentional way, but often spouses don't help. Sometimes they help, but often they don't. So you can see how there's there's a, a, a set of conditions here that invite what would be a deterioration in relationships with the family. So what happens in that case where you know, there is no litigation. Maybe there's not, again, any overt argument. So the brother takes this shotgun, for example, that had been in the family for a couple of generations. The other one really wanted it, but wasn't going to express that, but still walked away with a grievance, unspoken. Now, what is the impact of the relationship over time? So I think a lot of that happens. You can imagine your own many scenarios. Maybe you can think of scenarios in your family where it's happened, where there's still this simmering resentment that exists regarding something that was not expressed and and probably should have been expressed and talked out. Instead, it wasn't. And so it, it, rather than, than making things better in the family, it makes things worse. So um, I think that your goal when you do your estate planning among your very highest goals should be that it's like doctors. What is the Hippocratic Oath? Um, that whatever I do, I'll do no harm. I would argue that in taking care of your children in your estate, whatever you do, do no harm to those relationships. So it means that maybe you can't help out your children a lot in their lives, but whatever you do, you don't do harm to their relationships. There's something sacred about a family, and a family, by definition, is plural. Its contents are plural. And that means that you have to elevate what is what will be the impact on the relationships of what I'm deciding to do. And I would even go so far as to say that if you can't distribute your your your, your estate to your children or your loved ones, we'll say, in such a way that, that you cannot do it without doing harm to their relationships, I would argue that you should consider perhaps giving it to someone else, giving it to a charity, giving it to your church, your synagogue, whatever. There are many, many good causes for your estate. And if, and if there's no way you can pass it to your loved ones without diminishing the quality of their relationship with one another, then this is my set of values. And you may disagree, but I think many of you will agree with me. So I'm suggesting that you think about it this way. And remember, there is an option. You can give all your stuff to somebody else. And, and many families, we all know, would have been better off if they had done that. I'm sure you can think of those examples. So um, in the, I think in most cases, of course, that's not necessary. Um, but it is necessary to think about how do I distribute these in such a way to where I don't cause harm to their relationship. 
So that really is what this show has been about. And and we've talked, we focused on one aspect of your estate that that is notorious for causing disproportionate problems. So um, hopefully these ideas have been helpful to you. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.